Okay, we're continuing together our study in chapter 31 of our Confession of Faith, in which we're dealing with the state of man after death and the resurrection from the dead. And we've been looking together at paragraph 1, which um, sets forth um, the state of the bodies of men after death and the state of the souls of men after death. And we said that death is the separation of the body and the soul. And um, that's what happens when we die. Well, what happens to the bodies? We know that they go into the ground and return to dust and see corruption. But our souls um, are eternally conscious and they return to God. You know, we, we talk about people being unconscious. You know, if you're knocked unconscious because you receive a blow to the head or something... And, uh, and, and yet, when people die, uh, their souls are not unconscious. They are as conscious and aware and awake as you and I are right now. And uh, their souls go back to God. And uh, there is a, um, a, a uh, God, God, God makes a determination. There's a determination made as to whether these people are righteous or whether they are wicked and based upon that their souls are either taken into heaven or they are sent uh, to hell. And uh, we looked at each of those states in our previous studies. And we looked at the state of the souls of the righteous. They enjoy perfect holiness. They dwell in paradise. They live with Christ. They behold the face of God. And they look forward to the redemption of their bodies. We then, uh, in the last couple of sessions, talked about the state of the souls of the wicked after they die. And we saw that they uh, are sent to hell. That's their location. And then we saw their condition. They remain in torment and in darkness. And then we considered together their expectation what do they have to look forward to? Um, the uh, day of judgment in which they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And so that's where we left off last time. And uh, we're going to uh, talk more when we get into chapter 32 about the everlasting destruction that they experience, not a destruction of their persons. There is not annihilation but everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That is, any opportunity for a relationship with God will be forever destroyed. And so this is the terrible state of those who die uh, unsaved. And what this doctrine does is it presses upon us the urgency and the importance of being reconciled to God now in this life, because if you are not, there is no second chance. And uh, that leads us then to um, this final phrase um, in this paragraph when it says the souls of the righteous are received into paradise, the souls of the wicked are cast into hell. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Now, in Roman Catholic theology... There is a place called purgatory. Ever heard of that? Purgatory? Yeah. Okay. 
Purgatory doesn't exist. Um, there is absolutely no warrant for it whatsoever in the Bible. There is no biblical proof for it. And uh, there's no basis for it. It's something that the Catholics simply invented. And uh, it has been a doctrine that's very useful to them. Uh, in fact, because of the promotion of that doctrine, um, the, the Reformation uh, occurred. There was a man named Tetzel, and he was going around selling what are called indulgences. Tetzel was an agent of the Roman Catholic Pope, and he was going around selling indulgences to get people out of purgatory and into heaven. And uh, what they taught was that even the righteous still have to pay for their own sins, and so they would... Um, uh, Upon death, everyone went to either hell, if you were totally unsaved. If you were saved, you went to purgatory. Unless you were a super saint, if you were a super saint, you went directly to heaven and bypassed purgatory. So purgatory was a place of suffering for those who were saved, where they endured the punishment for their sins until they were uh, fully um, paid for, and then they would get to be sprung out of there and go to heaven. And so it was kind of an intermediate state between hell and heaven. It wasn't as bad as hell. It wasn't as happy as heaven. It was a place where there was suffering for uh, our sins on this earth. And uh, when that suffering had gone on long enough, then you were able to go into heaven. Well, uh, if your relatives on earth would pay the Roman Catholic Church money, then you would get what was called an indulgent, which is an indulgence, which is a reduction in the amount of time that you spent in purgatory. Um, you know, it's kind of like if, if, if you went to jail for 20 years and for every $1,000 I paid, the judge would reduce your sentence by a year. And if I came up with 20000 you wouldn't serve your sentence at all. Um, well, if I loved you, I would scrape up as many thousand dollars as I could to shorten your stay in jail as, as, as much as possible. And that's what the Catholic Church is doing. And, and, and Martin Luther looked at the scriptures and looked at this practice and said, this is ridiculous. Um, and uh, that was one of the things that began the Protestant Reformation. That's why we're called Protestants, Protestants. We protested. Um, the doctrines and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And so we have in Christendom, Catholicism and Protestantism. And the Protestants are those who protested against this unbiblical doctrine and this money-grubbing practice that the Catholic Church uh, engaged in. And while they do not sell for money indulgences anymore, the doctrine nevertheless still stands and now you can do good works to get your relatives out of purgatory. And um, you can uh, say certain prayers. You can uh, engage in certain practices. Uh, and as you do so, you shorten the time of those that you designate the beneficiaries of those practices. You shorten their time in purgatory. So that's the reason why this statement is in here. It is a polemic against the doctrine of Roman Catholic purgatory. And as we've seen, 
For example, we looked at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, there wasn't a third place. You were either in, in paradise or you were in hell. There, there was no third place. Uh, Jesus never taught that there was. Um, and uh, so we see that there is no second chance. There's no way to earn your way out of hell. Once you're there, you're there forever and ever without remission or remedy or any means of rescue. And therefore, the Bible says, behold, now is the day of salvation. And so we need to repent of our sins. We need to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior now in this life. Because once we die, our condition is fixed. If we die unsaved, we are unsaved forever. If we die saved, we are saved forever. And so that's the reason for um, that statement. All right, are there any questions about that? Roy? You can't pay to get somebody out of purgatory, right? Not now. Not now, but like <clears throat> whenever the mob would do something wrong, they'd go in and pay so you can pay for yourself now. Is that the way it works? Well, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what the mob does. Um, maybe that's the way they do it in the movies. Uh, but to my knowledge, okay, and having a brother who's a Roman Catholic priest and parents who are Catholics, um, to my knowledge, they don't accept money for purgatory as a quid pro quo, this as a this for that. Um, it is true that if you ask the priest to say a mass for one of your departed loved ones, that you would typically uh, pay a stipend to the priest, uh, a, um, a gift or whatever. But supposedly you're not paying him to do the mass. You're just giving him a gift uh, in appreciation for saying the mass. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, you know... What happens in Italy and what happens between the mob and the church, I frankly have no idea. But officially, they repudiate the idea that you can buy your way out of purgatory. Um, you can do good works on behalf of those who are in purgatory to get them out. That's a very similar doctrine in some ways to that of the Mormons where they have the baptism for the dead. And by your actions, you can get people out of um, uh, their form of purgatory. Um, the whole doctrine of purgatory is really a doctrine that's based upon the idea of the second chance. Reincarnation is the same thing, um, where there's a second go-round or a third go-round. And what we see is that all the false religions, almost without exception, have some sort of a second chance after you die uh, to be able to obtain redemption or to redeem yourself or something. And the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And there are no second chances. And that's the reason why, you know, we press upon ourselves and others with this sense of urgency that you need to repent and believe in Christ now because... Once you die, it's too late, and nobody knows when they're going to die. Uh, none of us have any guarantee of a number of years. And well, people typically live to 60 or 70. Um, we know people who die at very young ages, very unexpectedly. And so there's no certainty, there's no promise 
of any number of years, and that's why whatever, whatever time you have, you, you can't get saved in the past, it's gone. And you can't get saved in the future, it isn't here yet. The only time you can get saved is right now. And that's why we need to become saved now. Uh, as Jesus said, um, that we need to repent and we need to believe the gospel. And uh, so, anyway, uh, the doctrine of purgatory simply cannot be found in any passage of Scripture. Um, and uh, it's a figment of uh, the uh, imagination of people who came up with it in order to uh, earn money. Mike? It is. Yeah, they, they strongly affirm it. Yep. Caleb? Well, one of the things they did is they adopted a group of books called the Apocrypha uh, after the Reformation. The Apocrypha is, is a group of books. There's probably about 10 of them or so. I've forgotten the exact number. Uh, that are an addendum to the Old Testament. The book of Tobit, the book of Azaratus, there's a couple of chapters they add to Daniel. Um, there's a book of Maccabees. Uh, there's a number of these books. And what's interesting is the Jews knew about these books and they never adopted them as part of the Bible. And the Christians knew about these books and they never adopted them as part of the Bible for over 1,500 years. So, but suddenly when the Reformation occurs and the big stink is made about purgatory and the Catholics are caught with egg on their face because they cannot find a single verse in the Bible, suddenly they have what's called the Council of Trent, and which was the counter-Reformation. It was their reaction to the Protestant Reformation. Suddenly, they realized, that they, they said, oh, the Apocrypha is now inspired and part of the Bible. Because in one of those books, there's a very obscure reference that might be interpreted as being a reference to um, purgatory. And that's why in the Catholic Bible, you see they have the Apocrypha in it. Um, but other than Catholics, you know, the Jews and the Christians are all universally agreed that these books are not inspired by God and that they don't belong in the Bible any more than the Book of Mormon is inspired by God and belongs in the Bible. So that's, you know, what they do is they'll point to this obscure reference uh, in one of the apocryphal books um, and attempt to support their doctrine based on that. But the book itself is not inspired and therefore does not belong in the Bible. Caleb, do you have a comment? I was just going to say this whole doctrine of purgatory arises out of the idea of the insufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and our, um, our need to save ourselves. That's correct. Um, because <clears throat> what, what they do is, is it's like, let's say your neighbor boy comes along with his baseball and he sees your big picture glass window in the front of your house. And he goes, huh, I'd sure like to see that break. So he takes his baseball and he throws it through your window, shatters it to the ground. He gets caught. And he says, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And you go, yeah, I'll forgive you, but 
you're going to have to work in my yard to earn the $300 it's going to take to replace the window. So what the Catholics say is, well, look, the man forgave the boy, but he still had to pay for the broken window. And so they say, well, God forgives you of your sins, but you still got to pay for them. Well, not only is it not real forgiveness, it's not even parallel to the Bible doctrine of redemption. Because in the Bible doctrine of redemption, God doesn't just forgive us. He also extracts payment, but he extracted the payment from Christ. So it would be like if the boy broke the window and the parent of the boy who broke the window stepped up and paid for the window on behalf of the boy. And thus the boy was forgiven of the transgression. And so Jesus has, as it were, stepped up and paid for our transgressions so that we could be forgiven. And that's the error in their theology is they don't see that Jesus' death on the cross was full payment for sins. And therefore we have to pay for them ourselves. So you're exactly correct. The whole doctrine arises out of a out of a failure to understand the sufficiency of the work of Jesus and fully expiating all of our sin, paying for all of our sin. Adam, you had a comment? Uh, yes, there is. <laughs> I should have brought my Catholic Bible with me. I, I failed to do that this morning. But uh, right in there, it says, if you do this and this, this provides an indulgence of 3,221 days or whatever. Okay? I'm not kidding. It's, I can bring it and show it to you. It's right there in print uh, with, the, with the Archbishop's stamp you know, on, on, the, on the page. And so, um, anyway, this is an annotated Catholic Bible. It has a Catholic dictionary in the back. and has explanatory notes in it. And uh, anyway, all approved by the Pope and his representatives. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there are actual formulae. Well, yes, and, and it also really appeals to men's self-righteousness. Okay, I did this good thing, and therefore I sprung my brother, sister, mother, father, fill in the blank, out of suffering. And so that's a good work that also accrues to my account as well. So whenever you have a salvation that's based on human deeds, what you have is a cultivation of human pride, because you have the cultivation of human self-righteousness. You know, it's like people say, um, <clears throat> well, I'm a good person, and therefore I deserve to escape hell, and I deserve to go to heaven because I'm a good person. When in fact the Bible says, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. That's a direct quote out of Romans chapter 3. I think it's verse 10 or 11. Okay? 
It says, there is none righteous, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. None, none of us. Not me, not you, not anybody. Now, that's not to say we've been as bad as Adolf Hitler, okay? But you don't have to be as bad as the worst to go to hell. You just have to be something less than perfect. And we would all say, I'm less than perfect, okay? We would all say that. We would all say we've all sinned. We've broken the Ten Commandments. And if we've done that, Jesus says, or, or, or it says in the book of James, if you break the law just at one point, you're guilty of all. Okay? And so it's like if you have a pane of glass and the corner's broken out of it, the pane of glass is broken even though it's mostly intact. Now, you could also take that pane of glass and, and break it into a, a million pieces, and it would also be broken. But if it's just broken at one point, the pane's broken because it's a hole. And in the same way, if, if, if your righteousness has been broken in any way by sin, it's broken. And if it's been broken one time or if it's been broken 10,000 times, it's broken. And most of us have more breakage in our righteousness than we would care to admit or even know about. How many sins have we committed in a lifetime? Um, I think we'd all be amazed if we knew the total. Um, but the bottom line is, is that if we've committed even one sin, then we've lost. I mean, how many sins did Adam and Eve commit in the garden? One. Okay, to lose eternal life. Okay. To lose their righteousness. And uh, so they lost their righteousness with one sin. And Christ had to come and, and to die uh, to redeem us from sin. So the whole idea that I can do a good work to compensate for a bad work is ridiculous. Because I'm supposed to do good works. That's my duty. And if I do a good work, it's what I was supposed to have done in that situation. And therefore, there's no virtue in it left over to apply to my bad work. It's like if you go to work and you do your work at work, okay? Uh, does that make up for the previous day when you slept for an hour on the job? It can't. Because the work you did at work was the work you were supposed to do at work for that hour. And, and there's no extra work left over there to apply to the work you didn't do the day before when you were sleeping on the job. And, and so it is with our good works. They can't make up for our bad works because we were supposed to do that good work at that time. And that was the duty of that hour. And it just fulfilled the responsibility of that hour. And it's no, uh, nothing left over there to apply to previous hours. So our good works can't compensate for our bad because we're supposed to be doing good works 100% of the time. And uh, so the idea that we could somehow earn above and beyond what we were obligated to do is, is ridiculous because what we're obligated to do at every moment in time is to obey the law of God perfectly. So there's nothing left over to uh, do otherwise. I kind of wandered around there for a while. I don't know. Did I answer your question? Okay. Um, all right. Any other comments or observations? Benjamin?
Yeah, yeah, they, they really do strongly affirm that Jesus is God, but what they fail to affirm is the sufficiency of his atonement. And, and you're right, if, if it was God who died on the cross, the God-man, Christ Jesus, then the atonement certainly would be sufficient to pay for all sins. But what you have is this syncretism. Syncretism is the joining together of two things, okay? Where, where you have the work of God and the work of man combined together to produce salvation, okay? And, um, um, you know, that's also probably better called synergism, where, where two people work to produce something. Um, it's kind of like, you know, two oxen pulling in a yoke, and together they pull the wagon along. Um, and that's their vision of salvation. Christ works, we work, and together our works combined with Christ's works produce salvation. Um, however, if Christ is God, as you said, he's certainly able to do the work all by himself. He's certainly sufficient, and he's certainly able, and so why do our works need to be added to it? Furthermore, the Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. And so anytime you have a salvation of works, you have the boasting of men, the pride of men saying, look what I did. And um, number one, that's a lie. Number two, it robs glory from God. And um, therefore, it's, um, it's, it's utterly to be repudiated. So, yeah, um, that's, that's an interesting point, and, and I think you're right. Uh, they would strongly affirm the deity of Christ, but they also strongly affirm the inadequacy of his redemptive work. And so, if he's God, how could his work be inadequate? So, your point logically stands very well. Right. Everything about that. Right. It's really weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's because man wants to be God himself. He wants to be his own savior. And that's why, you know, salvation by works is such an affront to God because it's saying, you're not adequate. I'm adequate. I will save myself. So um, it demands a lot of humility to say, you know what? I can do nothing to save myself. The only thing I'm good at is sinning. I can't do anything else. And so we cast ourselves wholly on another to save us. And we don't rely on ourselves at all to save us. And so it's kind of like jumping off of a cliff into someone's arms. If they don't catch you, you're toast. And if they catch you, you're saved. And so we're casting ourselves into the arms of Jesus and we're saying, save me. If you don't save me, there is no plan B. I cannot save myself. That's the nature of true saving faith. There's a complete transfer of trust from ourselves and our works and our goodness to Christ and his works and his goodness, utterly abandoning any reliance on ourselves, our works, and our goodness. All right, well, our time's gone. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize the urgency of needing to be reconciled to you now in this life. For there is no opportunity to reconcile in the next. Father, we pray that you would help us all to realize that there is no second chance. There is no purgatory from which we can be sprung. 
Thank you, Father, for that. Lord, we thank you that there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to turn from the one to the other by turning from ourself and our sin to Christ and to trust in him alone. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.